Welcome to 5 Things About. Before we start, let me tell you about a new podcast called Eavesdrop on Ideas. Eavesdrop on Ideas explores themes through the lens of artists, authors and academics. Our second episode was Tipping Points, from viral marketing to planetary systems. We collected comments from amazing people, but the entire unedited interviews were so exciting we decided to publish them here on the 5 Things About channel. So here they are. Enjoy. My name is uh, Will Stephan. I'm an emeritus professor at the uh, ANU, the Australian National University uh, here in Canberra. Uh, but I've spent much of my career working internationally with colleagues around the world on issues of global change, climate change and so on. Will, could you perhaps describe for us the concept of the Anthropocene? Um, we know it's a very difficult and at times contested concept. Do you have um, a way that you would describe it? Yes, there are many uh, different Anthropocenes out there, but the one that uh, was the original use of the word uh, came from the year 2000 from a natural scientist named Paul Crutzen, in fact, an atmospheric chemist. Uh, and what he was doing was he was at an international meeting and he was listening to um, a range of reports from what we call paleoscientists, scientists who study the earth in the past. And in particular, uh, they were talking about the recent past, which is called the Holocene, uh, and talking about the Holocene this, the Holocene that, and, and looking at all the data, all, all the things they were measuring. And Paul was getting a bit agitated because he re realized that what we're seeing now is re extraordinarily rapid and quite deep changes to our planet, the natural systems in our planet. So he interrupted that report and said, hey, we're not in the Holocene anymore. We're in the, and then he was searching for a word and he just blurted out Anthropocene. Now, as you can tell from the uh, word Anthropocene, it has a geological sound to the end of it. And indeed that was quite deliberate in a way because the Holocene uh, is the last 11,700 years of earth history. And it's a relatively stable uh, time of the earth with a relatively stable climate, a robust biosphere and so on. But when we bring us humans into it, it's really important for us because it's only during this last 11,700 years that we have developed agriculture, villages, uh, more complex societies, uh, leading up to the very complex, large societies we live in today. But Paul Crutzen was saying we have left that stability domain of the earth system. And we're now on a rapidly changing trajectory into something new and different, which is still unfolding. And that's what he called the Anthropocene. The fact that we are now in a world or in a planet that is now dominated not by the natural forces that change the earth over the long, long time period, but we are now in an earth, in a world that's dominated by human pressures. They are overtaking natural uh, sources of change. Now, the second definition of Anthropocene Obviously, from the name, this is a geological sounding name. So the geological community has picked this up and they're testing it. Uh, they formed the Anthropocene Working Group. And the task of that group is to actually assess whether we stratigraphically or geologically have actually left the Holocene and are now in a new geological epoch. But as you mentioned, Susie, because the Anthropocene refers to us humans, it quite naturally has triggered an enormous amount of discussion in all sorts of other uh, spheres of, uh, of academia and indeed out into the big broad public about what the Anthropocene is. So there are many Anthropocenes out there, but the original definition was one based on what we call Earth system science, 
the fact that we humans are now the dominant force uh, changing the way our planet functions. Will, when it comes to the planet's health, we haven't always been looking after our own backyards. And what are the parameters and the predictions of the various stages of how the Anthropocene unfolds? Where are we headed? You can sort of look at at a couple of pre-Anthropocene stages just to give people the background. Uh, And that is the development of agriculture uh, and particular large-scale agriculture, which clears forests, change ecosystems and so on. But that really doesn't change the Earth system as a whole. We still identify it as being in a stable Holocene state. But the Industrial Revolution, starting in England in the late 1700s, started to change things primarily by accessing fossil fuels, coal in this case. And these were locked away from the active Earth system. They were uh, underground uh, inert. But when we dug them up and and burnt them, and of course, for us humans, that was a good thing because it provided us with an enormous new source of energy that we didn't have before this. But it also, when it was burnt, you're burning fossil plants. And when you do that, you release carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So that started changing the atmosphere and eventually the climate. Uh, So we physical scientists started looking back at the uh, Industrial Revolution as maybe a starting point for the Anthropocene. But it was interesting that it took humanity scholars, I think, to set us straight on this. Uh, And in particular, John McNeil, who is a 20th century historian. And he said, really, things didn't take off until the mid 20th century with with, uh, new uh, institutions Uh, like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the United Nations and all these things. And they unlocked uh, a lot of um, human ingenuity, uh, human drive and so on. And so it was really from the mid 20th century that we see things really taking off. That's the most important stage of uh, human development on Earth. And now that is the uh, preferred starting date for the Anthropocene about the mid uh, 20th century. And of course, now we look into the future, where might this take us? I like to put it simply in, in two enormous spheres of, of the Earth. One is the geosphere, the non-living part, and uh, that really is embodied in climate change. Uh, and so when we look at how the climate is shifting, uh, temperature is rising at an extraordinary, extraordinarily rapid rate uh, from a geological time frame. Uh, sea levels are rising. The ozone hole has been depleted and now is uh, fortunately uh, on the road to recovery. But we can see all sorts of changes in the physical system of Earth that are directly due to human activities, uh, the most important of which is is the burning of fossil fuels. But then the biosphere, the living part of Earth, has also been changed uh, enormously. And of course, this goes back a long way. But again, since the middle of the 20th century, you can start seeing uh, what we call novel entities, new things that we're shoving into the Earth system, chemicals, um, pollutants of all different types, radioactive materials, plastics, uh, and so on and so on. And they're accumulating everywhere. They're, they're now found in, in the, the most remote parts of the ocean, uh, the most remote parts of the land. They're found in the Arctic ice and so on. Uh, so we're seeing enormous changes to the biosphere as well. So in summary, what we're seeing is that uh, the Anthropocene, the, the real Anthropocene, started about the middle of the 20th century, and we're in a rapidly uh, a rapid trajectory away from from the Holocene. And of course, the real question I think is the one you posed there toward the end: is where is this leading? Uh, and the question is, we don't know, and we can't know because it depends on decisions uh, that our societies make or are in the process of making 
or will make in the future. So I think that's really the critical question that we face is just where is the Anthropocene going? So thinking about the event horizon from a metaphorical point of view, do you find that the concept of tipping point or tipping points is a useful one when thinking about the Earth's health and the Anthropocene? Yes, I I think it's a really key central part of the Anthropocene and and how the Earth works. Uh, And that comes in because uh, most of us are used to living in what we call a linear world, a world where uh, you can study things in terms of cause and effect, uh, where whatever the effect is, is somehow proportional to how hard you push the system. But in fact, many features of the Earth's system, when they are pushed or stressed really hard, don't behave that way. Uh, They appear to be at least somewhat stable. They're responding very slowly until you hit a tipping point. Uh, And then the the system in question may tip into an entirely new state. A good analogy for that that many people are aware of is if you uh, go out on a a lake uh, with a kayak and you're paddling along with a kayak and it's it's stable. Uh, As long as you keep your balance, you can tip it a little bit either way and it comes back to a nice stable position. But if you tip it just a wee bit too much to one side, it flips all the way over and, and dumps you under the water. And there are uh, parts of the Earth system which behave in the same way. Uh, A good example of a a system that has a tipping point is the Arctic sea ice. That's the ice that um, floats uh, on the surface of the Arctic Ocean uh, up around the North Pole. Now, that's very important because during their summertime, which is occurring now, uh, they get sunlight uh, 24 hours a day at the North Pole. Uh, And that sea ice is important because it reflects that sunlight and keeps it uh, cool up there. But if you lose that ice, uh, then the darker seawater starts absorbing more water. That increases the regional temperature, which, of course, causes the more ice to melt. That uncovers more dark ocean water. And you see that the um, feedback process uh, going on. So you pass a point of no return and you're going to lose the Arctic sea ice no matter what. And we think we're very close, actually, to that particular tipping point. But when you look around the Earth, you can see some big systems like the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, like the Antarctic ice sheets, which probably also have tipping points. And you see big ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest or the big boreal forest. Those are the big northern forests across Canada, Siberia, and so on. That if they are stressed too much, sometimes by a combination of deforestation like in the Amazon, but also climate change, which is reducing rainfall over the Amazon, that may hit a tipping point where it burns a lot of forest fires, Uh, And it uh, irreversibly uh, converts that uh, forest into a savanna or an open woodland. We don't know where that lies, but it's conceivable that in the next couple of decades, we could cross that tipping point. So the concern a lot of us Earth system scientists have is that sort of like a row of dominoes, if you start tipping the first couple of dominoes, you could tip the entire row of dominoes because they are, are linked. And the same thing is true with the Earth system. When you start tipping some of these uh, tipping elements, uh, they could act like dominoes, influencing other ones until we, uh, we, we could possibly reach a, a point of no return where the Earth system is going to uh, move into a, a much harder, much uh, less uh, biodiverse rich state, even if we get our own act together. So that's the real concern we have out there. These multiple tipping points uh, could indeed start a cascade uh, that would take the Earth system out of human control Even if we get our emissions down, even if we stop deforestation, we could not stop uh, the transition of the Earth as a whole into an entirely new state. 
Will, that sounds like we're on a trajectory towards doom. I know there's a lot of communities around the planet that are trying to make sure we don't head that way. What's your assessment of where we are? Look, I I think we're at a point where we are approaching the first of these uh, tipping points. I think the Arctic sea ice that I mentioned uh, is a good example of that. Coral reefs are another one. Now, that's an interesting tipping point because it doesn't seem to be linked to the other one. So it's a domino sitting off on its side. But of course, in its own right, we value coral reefs for the beautiful, rich biodiversity. They're the most uh, biodiverse, rich marine ecosystems. The biggest one happens to be here off the east coast of Australia, the Great Barrier Reef. But we think that we are very close to, or we may have already crossed that tipping point. In the last five years, we've seen three mass bleaching events that does not allow enough time in between bleaching events for the reef to recover. Uh, And with temperatures uh, certain to rise for the next couple of decades, it looks like uh, we will see the end of the Great Barrier Reef. My prognosis is, is that we have not yet reached a point where we're going to initiate this tipping cascade. We don't know for sure where that might lie. It could lie, in my view, as low as 1.5 degree temperature rise, or we could uh, not activate it till between two and three. We simply don't know. So it really becomes a game of risk. How much risk do you want to take? Uh, But my view is once we breach 1.5 degrees, the lower Paris target, we will be entering what I call dangerous territory in terms of uh, tipping some of these tipping elements and perhaps moving the Earth system to a much uh, different state. So the way I like to look at it is we're at a very critical fork in the road now. Uh, We could choose a future that's uh, much different than the pathway we're on now. We could really ramp up the um, rollout of renewable energy. Uh, We could phase out all fossil fuel sources, including gas, uh, so coal, oil, and gas, over the next couple of decades and convert to a renewable-driven economy. Uh, We could turn the the tables on how we treat the biosphere. We could go from an economy which exploits the biosphere, which only generates income by cutting trees down and harvesting them, into an economy that actually is designed to uh, maintain and regenerate the biosphere. We could do that over the next couple of decades. That would steer us onto a pathway that I like to call stabilized Earth. It won't be the one we came from, the Holocene. It'll be something different. It'll be one that requires some human stewardship uh, to keep in a stable state. But it would look like a planet that is maybe a degree and a half or so warmer than present. It'll certainly have a lot of degraded ecosystems around the planet, but it will be on a trajectory of restoring them and so on. The alternative, and this is why I talk about a fork in the road, I don't think there's going to be multiple states of the Earth system we're going to access. I think uh, there'll be a a set around stabilized Earth and another set around what I call hothouse Earth. Uh, And that is when, if if we do trigger this tipping cascade, if this exists uh, and we don't get our act together, if we keep burning fossil fuels, if we think that we can burn gas and think that's a good thing, uh, we could still push the Earth system over this tipping point. That would take us to an Earth that would be four or five degrees hotter, and that would make it much, much more difficult for human societies to thrive. It would make it much more difficult for most of the ecosystems we value today uh, to survive and thrive and so on. Uh, and that's uh, the sort of scenario where you could not rule out uh, the fact that our contemporary societies could collapse under that sort of pressure. So I think we're approaching in this decade, the decade of the 2020s, this fork in the road as to which direction uh, we're going to take the Earth system. I'll say one more thing. I I think 
this fork in the road that I'm talking about. I think it's going to take uh, deeper changes in human societies that most of us are thinking about. Uh, and that gets out of my own area of ex expertise and into the humanities in particular uh, and the social sciences. But I think we need to go all the way back to, down to what our core values really are, who we are as a species, how we're going to interact not only with each, with, with each other, uh, and growing inequalities actually are an important part of the Anthropocene as well, uh, but how we interact with the rest of life on the planet. And that does require some very deep thinking uh, and new ways of organizing our societies and our economic systems. There are some really innovative, good ideas out there. Uh, and I'll just mention one of them because I think it's one of the most unique, and that's the the donut economics of uh, Kate Rayworth from Oxford University. And that's designed around having a floor and a ceiling. And the floor is human well-being, that we really need to develop economies that are much more equitable uh, and that look after human well-being as an important goal. But at the same time, there's a ceiling. We can't uh, consume so much that we destabilize our own planetary system. Uh, so she draws it as a circle with an inner circle of human well-being and an outer circle of, of what we call planetary boundaries, uh, the limits beyond which we should not push our home planet. Uh, and that's where the nickname Donut Economics comes from. But there are other ideas out there, other people who have thought about different trajectories that the human enterprise should take. So ultimately, uh, my view is that we natural scientists can certainly talk about guardrails, about, about limits, about risks, about dangers. But how we actually change uh, human societies is a broader, deeper issue that needs to go into the humanities, needs to go into the social sciences and so on. So I think we, we need, as we go forward in this decade, uh, sort of a, a, a real deep conversation amongst those of us who are in scholarly activities and indeed civil society and governance as well uh, to, to help develop systems that can steer us uh, onto a stabilized earth pathway and keep us away uh, from these tipping cascades. I had one curious question I wouldn't mind asking you. You may or may not have an answer to this one. Will, have you ever seen a creative artwork about climate change that really resonated with you, that stayed in the top of your mind? Well, I thought there was a very nice creative work done by, uh, of all people, finance, the finance people at, for the country of Singapore. Uh, and this was a year or two ago. And they only made, uh, the video was only about five minutes long. Uh, and it had some beautiful music behind it, a bit of David Attenborough in his usual uh, very uh, dulcet tones, uh, warning us about we, we are running out of time. But the images of particularly sea level rise, which is important for Singapore, but also the images at the end of humans out there doing things differently. Uh, we are a visual species. Uh, and that really struck me, the, the, the combination of not very much text, certainly very, very little science, uh, but some very, very uh, beautiful images of what the earth could be if we changed the way we went. Beautiful. You mentioned, just as a side note, um, quickly, you mentioned the concept of, um, well, the, the term biosphere. I'm interested, have you heard of the experiment or do you have any opinions on the experiment of biosphere too? Oh, yes. That was the one in America, wasn't it? Yes. Yep. That one failed, of course. Now it's a tourist attraction. Uh, but I have visited and have gone through it and so on. But that was an attempt, as, as you probably well know, to create an artificial biosphere enclosed, uh, which would mimic the real world out here on Earth and in which humans could live. And I think they put in something like 12 or 14 people, half male, half female. 
And the idea was to be able to live as long as possible within this enclosed artificial biosphere. But it went unstable fairly soon, within a year or two, I think, of them opening it up. And the problem there was that they could not, you know, ironically, could not control CO2 concentration. Uh, so the system, uh, the, the sources and sinks of CO2 were not balanced, and they were building up uh, dangerous levels of CO2. That's not because of uh, uh, the greenhouse effect of CO2, but, but the fact uh, that uh, they were, it was taking the place of oxygen in the system. And so it was getting more difficult to breathe. So basically, the, the bottom line was, even with our best knowledge, that was a couple of decades ago, we could not mimic the real biosphere. It's far more complex. It's got far more feedback loops in it. Uh, it has far more stability than anything we've been able to do so far in terms of artificial biospheres. Thank you. Yeah, that's great to hear your point of view on that as well. I recently wrote a paper on Biosphere 2 talking a little bit along the lines of what you were saying, that we need to adjust our consumption, our interaction with each other and our relationships with each other and the earth, rather than trying to come up with massive solutions that are complex and yet don't actually serve the purpose of trying to find a solution to the uh, problems in the earth. It was great to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, Susie, I agree with your approach on that, actually. Thank you, Will. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne and the Centre of Visual Art. Thanks to our guest, Will Steffen. Your hosts were Dr. Andy Horvath and Dr. Susie Fraser. Audio engineering was by Arch Cuthbertson. This episode was recorded on the 31st of July, 2020.